Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Janet Hayes. She's the founder of Healing Minds NOLA. And NOLA is New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, the website is Healing Mind, or he, sorry, Healing Minds NOLA.org. So Janet, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Um, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Well, tell me about um, a bit about your background and then how did you come to uh, form or work at uh, Healing Minds NOLA? Yeah. So, well, it's a, it's a long, it's sort of a long and windy road kind of story. And I don't want to um, use up the entire uh, time that we have together talking about that. But the short story is that after Hurricane Katrina, I got involved with, with a fight to try to reopen Charity Hospital, which was our largest public hospital at the time that had been intentionally shuttered by the state and the Louisiana State University Board of Supervisors who had jurisdiction over, over the building. And um, a lot of, you know, and so because people were shut out of healthcare, we started to see a lot of tragedies start to happen and all kinds of different disasters. And so, um, and I have a friend who, unfortunately, because Charity was closed, she went to another hospital and visited their emergency room after she, uh, well, she was having an asthma attack, but she also had some psychiatric difficulties. And she got in an argument with the nurse, and I think they gave her a a shot. It was a steroid that she had an adverse reaction to, and she was trying to get an antidote. And, um, felt strongly that the nurse was denying her her treatment because she didn't have insurance. And so the nurse called the police. Police came and picked her up. And um, she promptly bit the officer when he grabbed her. And he did, to his credit, say that that, she did that just because she was reacting to him. Not It was not deliberate. 
but they put her in jail in general population and why is this just because what she didn't have insurance or what was yeah she didn't have insurance and got in a fight with the nurse and so the police officer came to pick her up after the nurse called the police and she bit the office so you know he she was being disruptive and so on and so they he took her to jail and uh anyway and they put her in the with the general population and the sheriff said she was trying to hang herself and so they transferred her to at the time the psych floor which was i believe the the seventh floor the tenth floor of the house of detention and and they tied her down in five point restraints and left her there on her back she was having an asthma attack and so as you can imagine she died and so it was after that that a, a mutual friend of ours let me know that there was this group that had organized who were trying to get the hospital reopened and that had it been open Kane, her name was Kane Masali would probably still be alive and so I got involved with this group of activists and really got involved in you know really passionately involved in this issue of the, the closure of this hospital which you know ultimately it really was criminal because the building was ready it was ready to be open that the army had come in and cleaned it out and it was cleaner than it had ever been about three weeks after the storm yet the state still decided to keep it closed which was an injustice that I had a hard time living with and so we lost that fight and then later on there was a plan to try to get the state to and the and the and the and the and LSU to retrofit their new hospital plans uh, into the old building now the LSU had decided a long time ago to demolish a historic neighborhood to build a new hospital in an area of New Orleans called Lower Mid-City. So really, they wanted to move everything from downtown, where Charity Hospital is, up into Lower Mid-City. And they had plans, I think, for downtown. You know, there were always plans, right? These developers always have these major plans. They could never get the money to do that. The state kept denying them their you know, half a billion dollar allocation that they were asking for in order to do this. After Hurricane Katrina, they decided to take advantage of the FEMA. There was FEMA money attached to Charity Hospital, and they they wanted to get FEMA to buy them a new hospital, which in the end is exactly what they did. But, you know, we went, we, we, we fought, and I became the community outreach coordinator for SaveCharityHospital.com, which, um, became the activism arm of, you know, the group that was trying to reopen the hospital and then eventually get the state to retrofit the new hospital in the old building. And, you know, we staved off the demolition of the historic neighborhood for a long time. And we we exposed a lot of the injustices that were going on around that issue. You know, again, we, we didn't win. And then we ended up with a million square foot building, empty buildings sitting in the middle of downtown. The idea about what to do with it there were a lot of ideas being bounced around. The state was putting out RFIs and RFPs and all of this other kind of stuff. And so I submitted a proposal to reuse the building as a mental health care and research uh, one-stop shop center of excellence. Because when they closed Charity Hospital, we lost about 200 psychiatric beds overnight. And we started seeing a huge uptick in people being channeled into the criminal justice system, into homelessness. 
and people who were dying um, as a result of not being able to get psychiatric care. So it kind of made sense to me to pair the problem with the solution, you know, a problem that was created by the state. And, you know, I think it would have been redeeming had the state agreed to do that after, you know, the injustice that was really done to the community. This was some something they could have done to sort of, I hate to say, to, to make up for all of the, you know, all of the tragedies that were created as a result of their actions. But they didn't want to do that. And so the the hospital is now being, uh, the plans are to reuse the building for research and residential. Quick question here. What, from your experience, why do people have these uh, mental health crises? Like what are the common factors that precipitate them? Like yeah. What are these people's circumstances and, you know, what are they? Yeah, they yeah. yeah, I'm getting to that. So, well, so our organization, so I created this organization, Healing Minds NOLA, about five years ago. Uh, really, it was to have, um, to be able to attach a name to some to, to my proposal to reuse the building that wasn't just me and it wasn't SaveCharityHospital.com, which came with a lot of baggage. The idea was to let's start fresh. You know, let's look at replacing what was lost, which were 200 psychiatric beds, mainly for people in psychiatric crisis who have issues with schizophrenia, bipolar disease, in particular bipolar one, and serious uh, major depressive disorder. Those are kind of the big three serious mental illnesses. But, you know, of course, there's a continuum or there's a spectrum of mental illnesses from the most mild to the most severe. And so people could go to Charity Hospital for whatever their issue was. I mean, there were, and, and also the hospital um, provided treatment and care for free. It was the hospital for the indigent and the poor. You didn't need money. You didn't need insurance to go to Charity Hospital. You would go, they would patch you up and then off you would go. You know, they would discharge you. Now medications you had to pay for, but the treatment itself was free. And you, and you know, they, they would take care of you even if you weren't from the United States. There were wait times, uh, you know, as you can imagine, associated with a free, you know, free hospital care. And so people used to complain about wait time. But when you got into the building, you got into treatment, the, the care was as good as you're ever going to get because it was a teaching hospital. So, you know, they always have the latest, greatest treatments and you have your supervising doctors and your resident. You're going to see the resident, but they're going to be operating under the supervision of the VX anyways. And so, so those, so we had about 128 inpatient treatment beds for people with psych, in psychiatric crisis. Well, actually, let me start over. We had about 50 crisis beds at Charity Hospital for people in psychiatric crisis where they could go get stabilized and then if need be, they would be transferred to the inpatient unit and they could stay there for as long as needed to be stabilized, get on the treatment plan, and then um, they were discharged. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So, and again, this is mainly for people with psychiatric diseases that where they demonstrated that they're dangerous to themselves or somebody else or gravely disabled, which is what 
allows at the time, and it still happens this way, allows police officers to intervene, to pick them up, to take them to the hospital. It's civil commitment law. And then, um, you know, and then depending on their behavior, their symptoms, if they meet eligibility criteria to be held longer, then they can be held for as long as needed to um, get them back you know, on their feet and, um, you know, and what we, what we say being made made competent, right. So that they can, when they're discharged, they're being discharged into a situation where they're supposed to be able to care for themselves. Does that always happen? No. Is that supposed to happen? Yes. Now the problem with charity hospital was we had a really good uh, system of inpatient treatment and care. What we didn't have and what we still don't have is anywhere to discharge people to. So technically, if you have a full continuum of psychiatric treatment and care, which is what my organization advocates for, if somebody's in crisis, they would go to get treatment at the hospital, but then they should be discharged into whatever programs, services, or facilities are appropriate to meet whatever their needs are. So And those systems have to be coordinated. We don't have any of that. And in fact, the whole country really is struggling with how do you create a coordinated system of care that, you know, no matter where a person enters the stream, stream, they're going to find, you know, whatever resources they need to be able to uh, manage their illnesses. And so, so I started this organization to really look at how do we remove these policy barriers to treatment and care for people uh, living in particular with untreated and undertreated serious mental illnesses that are high utilizers of crisis systems of care, including behavioral health systems, criminal justice systems, social security or social services, and, you know, families, they're in and out of family care, you know, and, and so, so, I mean, well, what, what handcuffs us to, from being able to help people when they need help? And so, um, Anyway, so that's really why I started the organization and the evolution of its creation. And, you know, it was, it was the, the interesting thing was, you know, I had proposed this great, I had this great idea for this one-stop shop, you know, mental health care center of excellence. And people kept asking me, well, how are you going to pay for it? And how are you going to fill the space? And so, you know, in doing that research, I really went down the rabbit hole of how broken and fractured this system of mental health care is in America. And in fact, so broken that in a lot of cases, people will say that we don't even really have a system at all. What we have is uh, sort of a patchwork or a piecemeal, piecemeal programs and services that don't connect to anything. We have broken laws. We have, you know, there's just no continuity anywhere. There's nowhere to plug into when a family's in crisis or somebody's in crisis. Usually they, they have no idea where to start because nobody researches what's, what happens, you know, or what do you do if you're in a psychiatric crisis? Nobody like does research about that well, until well, you have is, a psychiatric is, crisis, right? What is, what is, what are some common psychiatric crises? What happens? So typically, you know, what, what I, I get a lot of calls from family members whose, you know, loved ones had uh, started, you know, they had a psychotic break, usually in late teens, early 20s. You know, the family, the family usually recognize that something's wrong because the individual's behavior is a bit strange or odd. You know, they are not making sense. They're, you know, just behaving in ways that, you know, confusing and and saying things that don't make sense and that sort of thing. And so usually the family will know at that point to take the individual to the hospital, usually to the emergency room. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And it almost always starts there. For a lot of people, the problem is that in about 50% of cases, people with schizophrenia and bipolar disease lack insight that they have a serious mental illness and so will not voluntarily agree to seek treatment or care for themselves. They don't think they're sick. And so if you don't think you're sick, then you're, why would you seek treatment? It makes perfect sense, right? But right. usually that the reason for that is being, is caused by a cognitive impairment or a thought disorder. And so it's unfortunate and kind of, it's ironic that, you know, the very part of the brain that a person uses to know that they need help is the same part of the brain that's impacted in ways that they lack insight that they need help. So there, so it's really difficult for family members then to convince somebody to go to the hospital, you know, there's something wrong, you need help. And they'll, you know, and they'll say, no, there's nothing wrong with me. You're the problem. You need help. Or they have these delusions and so on. And that happens a lot with delusions and hallucinations that the family's trying to poison them or that they're with the CIA or FBI. These kinds of paranoid delusions are very, very common. And so they're, you know, so it's really difficult for the family member to get the individual into treatment. Usually there's a breakdown in the family, there are conflicts and so on. And ultimately the individual might be pushed out into homelessness or end up in the criminal justice system. There is There are ways for families to have their loved ones committed to hospitals uh, involuntarily, but the, the system is not designed to really provide adequate and long enough uh, treatment, long enough stays so that the doctor really has the time and the ability to properly diagnose the illness and get the individual on medication that's going to work for them and then discharged into some sort of continuity of care, or maybe they need longer, you know, maybe they need a longer period of stability in a facility like a residential treatment center, which those kinds of things don't exist where you have 24 seven onsite support. That's not a hospital. It's a residential setting. It's still transitional. But people aren't then living in the hospital. They're living in, you know, you know, facility where they're getting um, the same kind of supports that they would be getting in the in the hospital, only in in the community. That doesn't exist. And so what happens is, you know, families will have their loved ones committed sometimes because of insurance, you know, barriers in insurance coverage. So insurance typically will only cover a two week stay at a hospital for somebody in psychiatric crisis. And so after two weeks, the hospitals will just kick them out. You know, often misdiagnosed or undertreated or undiagnosed with a prescription plan and orders to, um, you know, follow up with an outpatient provider. The expectation is that people who have cognitive impairments and thought disorders, for them to be able to be their own best caregiver is completely, it's just completely unrealistic, but that's what we do. So often people end up being repeatedly committed, involuntarily committed to hospitals because there's nothing for them in between, which is really traumatic for the individuals. It's also traumatic for the families. Like I work with families all the time that know that their loved one needs treatment and help, but they just they really don't want to have that individual involuntarily committed because of an experience they had the time before where they did what they were supposed to do, but the hospital let them out. And now the loved one won't talk to them anymore. Now that the family right. member is, is furious, you know, um, it only when the makes... people when the people go in for two weeks, does it help them at all? Or what do they do? What's a typical protocol for someone in the hospital? So that's acute care, you know, after over time, we really um, 
society, we, we decided in America anyway, we wanted to deinstitutionalize, you know, the asylums of old. I don't think I you know, need to explain to your listeners about the, the horrors of these ginormous state asylums that were under resource and horrible things happened. And so, you know, President Kennedy in 1963 passed the Community Mental Health Act, which the idea was to transition people out of hospitals into community care. And but that never happened. And so we they just deinstitutionalized and so on. So so the idea of a long-term stay, I and mean, long-term stays are really hard to find now. These these long-term hospital beds, there are very few of them. You know, most city states are averaging nine beds per hundred thousand people when really we need about fifty beds per hundred thousand people. But we do have acute care beds in Louisiana. We actually in fact in New Orleans, we you could say we the term that we use is overbedded. In our area here, we have plenty of acute care beds, but you'll hear EMS and police all the time saying, we don't have enough beds. And they're saying that because they're taking people to the hospital and the, hospi- and the, and the hospitals won't admit people because they're, they're saying their beds are full. Well, these are two-week stay beds. People are revolving in and out as fast as, you're, you, know, fast as you can say boo. And, um, but the problem is that because we don't have long-term beds, the hospitals are boarding people in their acute care beds where they're not supposed to be. I mean, these two-week stays are for people in acute crisis. You go to the hospital, you know, you get a diagnosis, you get treatment, then you get out of the hospital, and then you're discharged to somewhere where you're supposed to follow up, you know, so that the doctors can monitor. You know, if the medications are not working, you come back and get an adjustment. So that works really well for physical illnesses. It doesn't work very well for mental illnesses. And so like in our hospital, University Medical Center of New Orleans, which is a uh, public hospital. They have 60 inpatient beds and they have 26 crisis intervention beds. Their beds are full because there are people who, some people have been in those beds for four months or longer. So, you know, and they, that happens because of you know, once the insurance runs out after two weeks, the state, we have this process called judicial commitment. And so the, the hospital can, if the, the doctor feels that the patient needs a longer stay in the hospital and that two weeks is inadequate, they can petition for a judicial commitment, which allows them to hold the individual for as long as necessary until the doctor feels they need to be discharged. So sometimes those stays can be, like I said, month because there's nowhere to discharge the individual. So they're still in these same hospital beds, you mean? Yeah, so you see this backflow because, you know, I mean, these folks are taking up these acute care beds and so other people came into the acute care. Now you have this whole backflow in the system and you have emergency medical services and the police and even family members to a certain extent. They're screaming, we don't have enough beds. Well, it's true. We don't have enough long-term beds, but we have plenty of acute care beds. Is that, so is the state long enough or adequate? For some people, it is, uh, especially if those people have additional supports around them to help them once they're discharged. Maybe they're living with family or, you know, they have, they're just better resourced. And I don't want to give the impression that if you have resources that you, you know, that that is the panacea of the problem, because I have a lot of families that call that are extremely well resourced and have the exact same problems as other people with the lack of program services, facilities for their loved ones who need, you know, they need that long. But where, where do people go then? If there's no more asylums, I mean, there's other so places where they can go long term or where do they go? 
Yeah, they they can. They can go to jail. It's uh, they offer twenty four seven supervision in a jail. You go there, you're locked up, and you stay um, until the judge decides that you get out. Now, if a person um, now, but the whole there's thing, no, there's as nowhere we to know, go. There's no, nowhere to go besides these temporary beds or jail. Well, yeah, you can go live under a bridge. I mean, see, this is the thing. Our laws require our laws require that a person be dangerous to self others or gravely disabled, meaning half dead, before we can intervene to help them with therapeutic involuntary intervention. If they are not dangerous, then they don't show up in the system. You show up when you're dangerous, you know, now depending on the level of dangerousness, if you've committed a crime, if you killed your family member, you're going probably go to jail. Uh, you might go to the hospital first for stabilization, but then you're going to go to jail. And that starts this whole process where you might be deemed incompetent to stand trial. Then you're transferred to a forensic hospital where you can get long-term treatment and care. Problem is you have to commit a crime to get there. You have to commit a crime to get into a jail. So, but our laws require people to commit crimes in order for us to, or they require that the law requires people to be dangerous in order for us to be able to help them if they're not able to help themselves and don't recognize they have an illness. It's completely inhumane and torture, in my opinion, what we do to require for people that need treatment. And so, yeah, so there's now if you're not dangerous, then and you're just sick, uh, you're deteriorating, but you're not dangerous enough for someone to intervene and say, hey, you know, you're not acting, you're acting a little, you know, you're not acting right. So I'm going to take you to the hospital most of the most of the people um and crisis calls right psychiatric crisis calls in new orleans our police will intervene and take people to the hospital they do not take people to jail just based on the fact that they're dangerous they will take people to jail if they committed a crime but if you haven't committed a crime you're going to the hospital the hospital is going to let you out eventually well, those people is, uh... will commit a crime yeah, none of these seem like solutions at all. Like, well, even a hospital bed. I mean, you're in a bed. Who 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 could be right. in a bed for any length of time if they're not uh, physically right. sick? They want to get That's out of right. there. So what I what we do and what I advocate for is alternatives to incarceration, homelessness, unnecessary repeated hospitalizations, which is what we're talking about right now, and death for this population. And what I feel needs to happen is we need, like I said, a full continuum of streamlined, coordinated psychiatric treatment and care that would look like this. Person gets sick. When you get sick, what do you do? You go to the hospital. The person gets treatment in the hospital and can stay as long as necessary in order to get on a good treatment plan. And then they're discharged into whatever is appropriate for their situation. There may be coordinated programs and services with, you know, intensive wraparound services, or maybe they don't need that much, but they also need somewhere to go. They need housing. So I think the three components that make up a continuum of care for me, the three major building blocks, is inpatient care, outpatient programs and services and housing. I think if you have those three building blocks, then it's a matter of just connecting the dot. You know, what is appropriate for the individual? What level of housing do they need? What level of programs and outpatient program services do they need? You know, and then, you know, and 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 so ultimately also, you know, I think by providing this kind of uh, this kind of care on the front end is really going to save a lot of money on the back end in this ridiculous situation that we're in right now where people are just in and out of the jail, they're in and out of the hospital. Hospitals are extremely expensive. 
modalities of treatment. Um, I think an inpatient bed in New Orleans probably costs somewhere around $1,500 to $2,000. You're looking at people who've been in and out of the hospital multiple times a year. That, those costs really add up. What we should be doing with that money is investing in residential treatment facilities with on-site support, 24-7 care, but also investing in, you know, like programs like assertive community treatment and forensic assertive community treatment, where you have 10-member teams on one person that provide real, meaningful wraparound support. You know, programs like assisted outpatient treatment, which is, it's a, that's a, it's a program that uh, it's civil, uh, it's a civil law that allows a civil judge to help a person with that has medication adherence issues, maybe because of lack of insight, to stay on their medications and also to make sure that the services are provided to them in order that they could be successful. These are the kinds of investments that we should be making. Not all this ridiculousness with sending people to jail and then the in and out of the, the you know, the forensic well, what are, what hospital, the, uh, back and forth. It's, it's yeah. just really, I mean, we have one guy. Which what, is, what are these uh, excuses, got, though? Well, why, we've why got we... one. Yeah, well, there are, well, there are, that's a good question. But we have one guy I just want to say that, you know, right now I'm dealing with who's been, he's 25 years old and he's been involuntarily committed 97 times since he was 16 years old. His mom added up the costs to the state three or cost the state 10 commitments ago. And it was $3 million, $3 million for one guy. His life looked like one hospital stage, the next, and in between maybe three or four days where he's at a motel until he gets in a fight and then he gets involuntarily committed again. He's been living like that for years. That's not living, right? There's so much we need to be doing better. And also I want to add on to the list of programs and programs that are needed as clubhouses. You know, we talk a lot about treatment, which is really important, but then you have the care aspect as well. So treatment is medical, but care part, you know, helping people reconnect to themselves, but then helping people People reconnect community, you know, places where they can go where, you know, they're usually peer run and they can find um, that, the, you know, in various programs they can participate in, um, make friends, you know, um, look, you know, get jobs, you know, that sort of. Um, and that's where, you know, clubhouses are, are really an important piece of the puzzle as well that we don't spend enough. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, yeah, what, what are the excuses that are made why, you know, the psychiatric patients can't get the help they need, housing, right. you know, proper care, et cetera. Is it expense or, you know, what are the reasons? Well, the politicians will tell you we can't afford it. So that's, you know, probably the most irritating thing that we hear all the time. We meaning myself and, and other advocates like me all around the country where you, you have a politician say, well, for instance, in New Orleans, you know, our politicians are saying, well, we can't afford these things because the state won't allocate money, but we can afford to increase our low barrier homeless shelter from 100 people to 300 people. We can afford increasing the size of our jail to build a mental health jail. We can afford or we're, you know, the governor's solution is we need a bigger forensic hospital. We have a 600 bed forensic hospital in the state. And the governor is saying, that's not enough. We need more beds. Well, that's fine. You can get long-term care there, but what do you have to do to get into a forensic hospital? You have to get a crime. And, and the process of getting into that hospital is no bowl of cherries. It takes sometimes a year of going back and forth. And our hospitals are three hours north of New Orleans. So you're talking about psychiatrists and lawyers and family members who are chasing their, you know, their patients and clients and clients and loved ones up and down the highway all day long, every day. How is that? 
how is that not costing us money? And so, you know, and there's really never been a, a good study done on the cost of not caring. Like how much is it actually costing us for these individuals who are really high utilizers of these crisis systems, as opposed to what we should be spending at the front end that would save you know, all this money at the back. And so the other reason, excuse, um, that we hear for why people aren't getting treatment is, you know, you have these civil rights groups who, you know, are, you know, they're very patient centric and believe that people have the right to be sick. We can't interfere with a person's self-determination and right to do the things that they want to do. And if they choose to be sick, that we can interfere, you know, with coercive measures or force them into treatment, they have to want to go on their own, which is kind of like saying, you know, trying to get grandpa with Alzheimer's disease to um, get his short term memory back, you know, it doesn't work that way. And we don't dimension Alzheimer's disease the same way that we treat serious mental illnesses, even though the symptoms are very similar. So it's discriminatory, you know, and the other way we discriminate, you know, the civil rights groups tend to discriminate is that, okay, say you have two people with serious mental illness, one, uh, as a result of no treatment, their behavior results in some kind of nuisance behavior, you know, maybe a misdemeanor offense, they have shoplifted, and they didn't know they were shoplifting, and maybe they they just went to the store and took something, you know, maybe they're trespassing, maybe they're, I mean, you know, we do horrible things to people who are homeless, and we don't provide them with restrooms and so on. And so they have to defecate urinate wherever they do. And then we arrest them for that. I mean, again, these are definitions of torture as far as I'm concerned. But then you have someone with the same illness, a serious mental illness, could be exactly the same illness, but their behavior results in something that's a, that's a, violent it's right they they're having delusions that their family member is coming at them with maybe they're a demon or something like that or they're trying to kill them and so the the individual kills the family member to defend themselves i mean they're not acting that way because they're you know they're violent they're acting that way because they're untreated but but we discriminate on the basis of behavior and that you know we have a lot of civil rights groups that then you know uh want to get they want solutions for people with mental illnesses in jail but they're only talking about people who have committed misdemeanor offenses they're not interested in people who have committed more serious offenses because in their opinion those people are just violent and they would have been violent anyway, even if they didn't have a serious mental illness, which to me is um, it's just uh, there's just such ignorance there. You know, it's like they don't understand there's, you know, just really understanding how serious mental illness works. And in particular, people who lack that insight that they're sick and won't voluntarily accept help or seek help. They just won't. You know, we're talking about the guy that's digging through the dumpster who thinks he's Jesus, right? If you go over and you say, hey, you know, I can I can get you housing, I can help you, I can get you whatever treatment you need, you know, come along with me, I'll get you a meal, you know, and I mean, this guy is just gonna, he's just gonna, you know, first of all, he's gonna yell at you, probably. And then he's gonna say, I'm Jesus, I can save you. There's nothing wrong with me. Well, you know, is it okay to just leave that individual then with his brain melting in the dumpster, you know, or should we take steps to intervene and say, this is a disease. If we don't intervene, it's going to get worse. Serious mental illness never gets better. It only gets yeah. worse. What's, what's happened since the, uh, you know, since COVID happened, how's the situation changed? Well, that's, there's been a huge uptick in people needing psychiatric beds and we don't have adequate capacity to 
accommodate them. But also there's been a lot of, um, we've lost a lot of workforce. So, and I know this isn't just New Orleans because I'm hearing in Virginia as well, hospitals are finding that, you know, and a lot of it is just payment structure. Nurses aren't being paid enough. And so they're, you know, they're leaving to go and work in other areas of care. But, you know, COVID has really exacerbated the situation because now you have people who are experiencing, you know, what we call situational illnesses like depression, you know, I lost my job or stuck in my house and, and I'm depressed, you know, it's um, folks, I mean, that's situational depression where they still, still, you know, it's serious. And if they need a bed, they, a bed should be available for those people. But, you know, they're kind of pushing out people who were seriously mentally ill before COVID happened. So again, this very vulnerable population is kind of shuffled to the bottom of the pile in favor of helping people now in situational crisis. So for instance, someone loses their job and, and is depressed, often the often the solution to that is a paycheck, right? I've been there. I've been devastated for, you know, at one point for not being able to care for myself and the, my loved ones because I didn't have enough money and just that de- the depth of depression there. And I'll tell you what, when I got that check, you know, somebody helped me out, my depression went away. And it's the same thing for anxiety. You know, people have are experiencing anxiety for the first time. It is serious. You know, people need help when they need help. But this isn't serious mental illness. Serious mental illness has a biological component to it. If you're seriously mentally ill and you, you know, find yourself in the situation that I just I just talked about, paycheck isn't going to help you get better. You're still going to be depressed, even though you get your paycheck, right? It's like, it's a disease. And we need to think of it as a disease. Because if we're looking at it in terms of just behavior, then we're not doing due justice to the individuals that are really suffering. And it's just, it's really horrific. So, all right. What's um, any particular solution that uh, you're working on that you see would would be very helpful? Or is it just a mess? It's a mess. Yes, I'm really I get really inspired when I listen to Judge Stephen Leifman talk, a judge from Miami-Dade County, who's done tremendous work within the criminal justice system to decriminalize mental illness and so much so that they've closed three jails in their area. You know, police uh, responding to crisis very rarely take people to jail anymore. And I just we actually just did an event. It's posted along with um, uh, some discussions that we've had with national leaders on these topics on our video archives page on our website, Healing Minds NOLA, under the home tab. And so anyway, we just did this event where, you know, he reminded me that, you know, these are complex issues. Solutions aren't complicated, but it's hard to know where to start. I mean, it's like, you know, when you listen to this kind of stuff, it's like getting hit with a fire hose of information. It's like, well, what do I do? You know, like, how do I get to where Judge Leifman is? You know, they're building a facility, first of its kind, you know, one-stop shop that's really designed for the most vulnerable to provide housing, programs, services, you know, everything that we need, everything that we know we need. He's doing it. Well, how's he doing it? And he always says, you know, you can't start with where they are right now but where they started 20 years ago was with uh when judge Leifman became a judge he 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 called everybody to a summit got all the major stakeholders together to work together to collaborate in the same room to get talk to each other to determine what are the long-term and the short-term goals that we need to solve these problems of these um this broken system, these fra- the fragmented poli- the fragmented system caused bad policy, lack of funding, all of that stuff. And 
from that summit, he then they then formed a task force to implement the solutions that they'd all agreed on. They all signed a document saying, I agree that, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm on board and we're going to work together toward the solution. But what made the difference was this diverse stakeholder group that are all collaborating together. So you have the DA and the sheriff and the public defenders and the behavioral health authority and the judges and, you know, family members and um, providers and so on. And they all sit around the table and uh, start working together and sharing resources and sharing information. And also takes a little bit of innovation. You know, I know when they started, when they first started, there were a lot of naysayers that were saying, this is never going to work, you know, and they just um, ignored that and kept, kept going. And now they're leading the nation. People are looking to, they're visiting the Miami-Dade facility and, and looking to them for leadership and inspiration to do the same thing in their own parishes and counties. So, you know, what can you do? Do what you can. Um, I started here in New Orleans with, uh, well, one of the things I was advocating for, again, assisted outpatient treatment, I mentioned it earlier, and that's something that people were really starting to get excited about. There I, there was a, a resonance that was sort of starting to happen in the state around this. Uh, we had a law uh, that was passed in 2008, but it was really uh, underutilized until I sort of came along and discovered that we had this law that, again, it um, really addresses this issue of uh, lack of insight that causes people to have trouble with uh, medication. They don't take their meds. And so when they take their meds, they're okay, but when they're off their meds, they're not okay. And so well, how do you get people um, to, um, you know, stay on their treatment plan? And so the pro, so there, we have these laws that allow, well, the, anybody can use the law, but law works best when you also have a program in a jurisdiction like a parish or a county where, uh, again, you get together a collaborative group of stakeholders that are all involved, kind of wrap around the individual, provide whatever services they need in order to be successful. But they have to agree to do their part, which is take your medication. And so it's not a punitive court. It's really designed to encourage the individual to be involved in their own treatment plan. Because eventually, and these are court orders, eventually the order is going to expire. When the order expires, you want that person to have gotten into the habit of caring for themselves. And so it's really very, it's, it's really amazing how the program works. And I mean, that's a whole other conversation unto itself. But, you know, again, listeners can go on our website and learn more about it. If you go to the, the home tab and, and the video archives under the home tab, you can scroll down and we did a whole segment on um, anisognosia, which is the term that we use to describe that lack of insight that people have. It was anisognosia and something else. And I can't remember the name of the title, but we, uh, we brought in a judge, Judge Oscar Kazin and um, another individual who, you know, we spent the hour talking about how AOT works. And also, I want to throw out a resource to listeners, the Treatment Advocacy Center, treatmentadvocacycenter.org. They're one of the only national organizations that I know of that are focused only on serious mental illnesses and removing policy barriers to treatment and care for this population. They do a lot of research. They have a lot of data on their website. And they have one, you know, one section on their website dedicated solely to assisted outpatient treatment and how to implement programs in, in your area. And you can reach out to them. They're more than happy to help. 
uh, people who are interested in starting programs, of course, you can always reach out to me and I can connect people to, you know, okay. whoever they need to speak with if they're interested in getting involved in advocacy. But like I said, yeah. that's where I started. And, you know, like, and, you know, I'll sure. tell you what, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of uh, skepticism in, you know, uh, the various departments in New Orleans who had heard they'd gotten some misinformation about the program. We're hearing rumors that, it was racially discriminatory and would increase incarceration and things that have been entirely disproven in, in studies a long time ago that that doesn't actually happen. Um, but then there was also this, um, I mean, we in New Orleans, we tend to, sometimes we get into analysis paralysis, we call it like, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you then for resources. So we've got healingmindsnola.org and then you said it's what, TAC? TAC, Treatment Advocacy Center, dot O-R-G. And that's national, right? Mm-hmm. And okay. from and from there, you can drill down into resources on their resource page and find more resources. And but I think it's a you know really a great place to start. And I, there's some wonderful things happening all over the country. I'm connected with advocates all over the country, and so you know more likely than not, you're probably living somewhere where there is somebody doing something. And I'd be more than happy to make. Okay, well, very good. Well, Janet, thank you for coming. And, you know, you work with people that uh, I'm sure very few people, almost nobody wants to work with. So thank God that you do and I appreciate yeah. what you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you do too and, and the opportunity to come on the show and talk about our work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.